as I was meeting with someone this week, kind of made an aside comment that it, it feels like everybody else in our church has it all together, and they're the only one that struggles. And I, I assured that person, uh, and I can testify and you can give a, a hearty amen uh, to this, that no one in our church has it all together. Amen? Right. Uh, we, we all fall short. We are all struggling. Uh, we are all stumbling. Uh, I mean, the, the journey and the, the trek to church on Sunday morning reminds us of that usually every single week, right? Just the, the, the pressure, the anxiety. Uh, I got to make it. Uh, lots of sin can come out even on Sunday morning. Uh, and uh, everybody who is following Christ, we are all striving to, to walk along the narrow path that, that Jesus calls us to, to walk on. But it is, it is so easy to wander off of that path. Uh, one of the songs that we sing uh, echoes that we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Uh, and the path that God calls us to, to walk along, this, this narrow path is often muddy and it's fraught with difficulty. Uh, and it's, it's really, really easy for us to lose our footing. Now, I love reading the, the commentaries of a, a pastor named Dale Ralph Davis. He has some commentaries on Old Testament books, and I appreciate uh, his commentaries on the Psalms. I love the titles of them. He has got uh, a commentary on Psalms 1 through 12 that is entitled, The Way of the Righteous in the Muck of Life. Uh, he's got another commentary on the, the next 12 Psalms that says, Slogging along in the paths of righteousness. And the cover it has these uh, muddy rain boots uh, kind of trudging along. And that's what the Christian life feels like often. Amen? Uh, the Christian life is a narrow and messy road. Uh, and it is a mess, first and foremost, because we are all sinners. Uh, second, we are surrounded by other sinners. Third, uh, we are surrounded by a world that is completely fallen. And then, uh, as we're going to, as we resume our study of John in the fall, we'll see that that fallen world uh, views all those who follow Christ as its enemies. Uh, and so, uh, this narrow path that we are trudging along is difficult and hard to uh, to follow. So, so how do I interact with God as I, as I trudge along this uh, narrow way with, with muddy boots and feet that are slipping in and sliding? How do I interact with God in, in the midst of that? And I love studying through the Psalms because that is the, the general topic of the entire psalm book. Uh, the way of the righteous in the muck of life. How do we continue on this, this muddy, narrow road? That is the, the theme and the focus of the Psalms in general, uh, and that is the theme and the focus of Psalm 25 in particular. I love what one pastor and commentator said. He says, The essence of the road of the righteous is this, that it is a road too difficult to walk without the companionship and friendship of God. Psalm 1 is a signpost which directs the wise to the choice of the right road. And Psalm 25 is a companion for use along the way. And that's what, what I see here in Psalm 25. And that's hence the, the title of praying as we walk along the narrow way. Psalm 25 should be our companion in that endeavor. Uh, the superscription to the psalm says that uh, it is written by David. 
Uh, and it's unclear concerning the, the context or the background. We're not given any other details about uh, when he wrote this or why he wrote it. Uh, but this psalm in particular has a lot of structure that, that tells us that David spent a lot of time thinking through artistically how he was going to, to write this psalm. Some of your copies of God's Word may have uh, this psalm laid out, and there's uh, a Hebrew letter at the beginning of each verse, because this uh, psalm is known as an acrostic. So each verse begins with another le- the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's one of eight uh, acrostics in the, the Psalter. Uh, psalms 9 and 10 uh, kind of fit together to cover the entire Hebrew alphabet. And then uh, Psalm 25, Psalms 34, 37, 111, 112, 119, and 145 are all acrostic psalms. Uh, and uh, why would you do something like this? Well, number one, I think it helps to provide a framework uh, for uh, his artistry. David uh, loves, uh, he was a great poet and psalm writer. Uh, it, it provides a framework for him. It would also simplify and help him to memorize uh, this psalm uh, and uh, to meditate upon uh, what he is uh, writing. And it also creates a, a nice eye appeal. If you were to look in the Hebrew Bible, you'd see, uh, and this would jump out uh, to you. But uh, And so that would be difficult enough if you were going to write a poem to, to write it as an acrostic. But I also think there's a, a more advanced structure here. And I put that on your outline, uh, as you see there. We'll talk a little bit about that. But I also believe that there's what is known as a chiasm in this psalm. And you see that uh, there's a kind of an arrow pointing uh, to something in the middle of the psalm. And when this structure happens uh, in uh, the Hebrew, uh, the emphasis is upon what is found in the middle. Uh, and so that chiastic structure is going to be kind of the, the, the outline that I'm going to lay out uh, and we'll, we'll walk through it. But I want to read through the psalm together, beginning in verse 1. Uh, and again, the superscription of David, that is a part of the Hebrew text, uh, and we need to, to see and understand it as a part. So of David, to you, and I'm going to be reading from the, the Legacy Standard Bible, and so if you're... Uh, what will jump out to you is that the, the Legacy Standard uh, Translation uh, translates the, the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. Instead of Lord in all caps, it will translate it as is presented to us there in the Hebrew as Yahweh. So uh, it's, it's a helpful translation, but I just want to give the background to what I'm uh, reading. But verse 1 says, To you, O Yahweh, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, let none who hope in you be ashamed. Let those who deal treacherously without cause be ashamed. Make me know your ways, O Yahweh. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. In you I hope all the day. Remember, O Yahweh, your compassion and your loving kindnesses, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Yahweh. Good and upright is Yahweh. Therefore, he instructs in sinners in the way. May he lead the humble in justice, and may he teach the humble his way. All the paths of Yahweh are loving kindness and truth to those who guard his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. 
Who is the man who fears Yahweh? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in goodness and his seed will inherit the land. The secret of Yahweh is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. My eyes are continually toward Yahweh for he will bring my feet out of the nest. Turn to me and be gracious to me for I am alone and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. See my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. See my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with violent hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness guard me, for I hope in you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. In this psalm, David writes about his own struggles, and he writes about how he is responding to his struggles. And as he strives to to walk in faith and obedience to God, he's going to to pray certain things as he's walking that, that narrow path. And as we read this psalm, we begin to see the struggles and temptations and trials that, that we face. They are not unique to us. Certain aspects of them are going to be unique, but humanity has faced the same kinds of trouble, troubles throughout all of human history. And the saints across time and space have always felt and experienced the same kinds of trials that David is, is praying through here. And as we come to this psalm, we are going to be instructed concerning how we ought to pray as we walk along that narrow way. Following after Christ, taking up our cross daily, obeying Him, pursuing Him. And what I want to to see here, it's going to be difficult to outline this completely neatly because it's an acrostic, right? Uh, And it's not intended to be uh, put into neat uh, categories. So uh, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, so I have a 22-point sermon for you. No, that, that, would be, that would be too much. Uh, I, what I want to do is kind of take this acrostic and, and look at it as I've also seen kind of this, this chiasm and this progression of thought that David's going to work towards in the middle and he's going to work back out. But I want to take the, the, the steps uh, together. Uh, and so really what I want to look at is going to be four descriptions concerning how we ought to pray as pilgrims following Jesus and walking the narrow road. Uh, And we're going to look at these four uh, descriptions concerning how we ought to pray. But before we dive into that, I want to lead us in prayer and ask for the Lord to guide our journey through this psalm. Father, we we come before you seeing the beauty and uh, the wisdom of your word and how you have worked in and through your servant David to, to write this amazing psalm for us. And we pray that you would use this psalm, uh, this time, to instruct us from your word. uh, That your word, uh, even as we just sang, would be planted within us and that it would shape and fashion us into your likeness. May you bless the proclamation of it now uh, and the effect of, of, of it in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to see these... These four descriptions of how we ought to pray as we walk along the the narrow path. Uh, And the first thing that's going to jump out at us at the beginning and the end of the psalm uh, is David's trust in God's protection. 
Uh, so the, the first three verses and the last three verses are going to, uh, to have a lot of similar uh, affirmations of trust in, in God and uh, prayers for God's protection and preservation. There's going to be the same words and themes uh, evident within these two sections. Uh, we see at the beginning and the end, David entrusting himself to God. Verse 2 says, uh, in you I trust, O my God. Verse 21 uh, establishes that David's hope is in you, in the Lord. Uh, And then there's going to be a phrase that is uh, quoted verbatim uh, in verse 2 and in verse uh, 20. Uh, The end of verse 2 or the middle of verse 2 says, do not let me be ashamed. Uh, And that same phrase is going to be seen in verse 20 as well. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. And so David is praying, not uh, saying that he is, God, don't let me ever be embarrassed. That is not the the prayer here. The, The idea is, God, I'm putting my hope in you, and everybody knows that I'm hoping in you. And if I'm putting my hope and my trust in you, don't let me be disappointed. Don't don't let me go all in in faith on you. And then everybody else knows that. And if you fail me, everybody else is going to remind me of that. And I'm going to be put to shame because they're going to say that I've trusted in you in vain. David is, is praying, crying out, God, don't disappoint me. But at the same time, he's also going to be confident that he's not going to be the one who's put to shame. Look at verse 3. Is indeed, let none who hope in you be ashamed. Uh, and But who is it that he is confident that the Lord will put to shame? Those who deal treacherously without cause. Let them be ashamed. Uh, God know, or David knows how God works, who he is, uh, and he's confident that he won't be put to shame. But his enemies, those who are attacking him needlessly without cause, they will be ashamed. They will be disappointed. And verse 20 also shows why David is confident that he will not be put to shame. It's because he's taken refuge in God himself. For I take refuge in you at the end of verse 20. So there's a lot of similarities between the the beginning and the end of this psalm. But each section also has a few differences. In verse 3, David prays for his enemies not to be able to boast or, or laugh at him in scorn. Don't let them be victorious over him. Verse 20, uh, David's going to plead for God to to keep him, to guard him, to preserve his soul uh, and to deliver him from his trials and from his circumstances. Uh, Verse 21, David is confident that integrity and uprightness will uh, watch over him or, or to guard him. But what's not clear is whose integrity, whose uprightness. Is he speaking about God's integrity and uprightness or is he speaking about his own? I think in this passage and in this context, uh, David is is solidifying, God, I want to walk uprightly before you. I want to walk in integrity. And David knows, and we see this throughout the Psalms, even in Psalm 1, right? Uh, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the, the counsel of the wicked or the uh, way of sinners or the seed of scoffers. But his, his uh, meditation is upon the law of Yahweh and he's going to prosper as a result. Uh, and so there's this, this connection between walking uh, in the way of the Lord and prospering. And, and David understands that. And he's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. Let my integrity watch over me. But he also understands that his integrity is not good enough. Uh, that his uprightness and his willingness to follow God, there's got to be more to that. And we see that because how does he finish that same verse? In verse 21, he says, let integrity and uprightness guard me. And yet where is his hope? His hope is not in his own uprightness and his own moral character, but he still understands that that's going to play a part, but he's still fully dependent upon 
God to stand for him and to be his hope and his salvation. And then verse 22 is also unique because it really stands outside of the acrostic pattern. Now, verse 21 is going to begin with the final letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, and verse 22 starts with a different letter. Uh, and again, lots of translations will kind of lump it in, but I think it kind of stands out and apart. And it shows that David, yes, he's concerned about himself and his own troubles and concerns, but he hasn't forgotten about God's larger relationship with his nation. And David is the king of that nation. Uh, and so he's going to pray for the Lord to redeem Israel, the nation, out of all of its troubles uh, and all of its circumstances. So there's a, there's a heart for the nation uh, as well, not just himself. And that's really easy when we are walking through struggles. What do we tend to focus upon? Me, myself, and I. And, and we lose sight of the bigger picture of who God is and how he's working in uh, the world around us and in the lives of others. But the big picture of, of the beginning and the end of this psalm is David showcasing where his trust is. That this is where he begins and this is where he ends. And he knows that God is able to guard his soul. God is able to guard his reputation. God is able to, to keep him from being ashamed. And God is able to put his enemies to shame. And David is talking and prayerfully expressing his confidence in God. And we need to take note of that, that his words of trust flow out of a heart that trusts, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Luke six forty five. So David is speaking this way because that's what is filling his heart. Even in his moments of struggle and trial, he's still trusting in the Lord. Uh, and, and I want to pause for a second and just think about when you are struggling and facing trials in, in your life, what is it we tend to focus upon? And what is it we tend to, to give voice to? Right? Because uh, David, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. And usually when we face trials, what are we always talking about? How hard things are. It's been so difficult. I'm, I'm so discouraged, all of this. But, and, and that is okay. If, again, reading the Psalms shows us that's okay. But that's just a small slice of what we should be thinking and talking about. But we ought to circle back around, even as David does here. What, do we, what should we give voice to? Where is our hope? Where is our trust? Where, where is our security? It's not in ourselves or our circumstances, but it's in the Lord. And are we willing to, to trust and to wait upon God, even as, as David says that he is willing to do that here? But we need to remind ourselves of that and, and speak that to ourselves and, and really wrestle with, am I willing to trust the Lord? Am I willing to wait upon him? And what does that, what does that look like? Well, to trust in the Lord means you're going to depend and rely upon his wisdom. You're going to believe that his wisdom is greater than your own. How did Jesus teach the disciples to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's easy to say that, but it's more difficult to actually desire that, to want that. Do we actually want the Lord's will to be done in our lives? Are we willing to entrust our will to him and say, Lord, everything that I'm hoping and desiring you evaluate, and ultimately in this situation, I want your will to be done. I'm going to trust in your will, your wisdom, and your timing. I think that's even more difficult. Because sometimes we want good things that the Lord would want us to have, but we grow impatient in receiving them. Say, Lord, can you hurry up with that blessing? I thought I would have that by now. Right? Your, your timing is not according to my timetable, Lord. And we grow anxious. And that's why David says, I'm willing to, to wait. I'm willing to wait upon you. 
and hope in you. Are we willing to do that? And not only are we willing to do that, but are we willing to profess that, to speak about it, uh, to echo that to others and, and for others to be able to see our confident trust in the Lord. And again, you kind of see if we talk about it, what might happen? Same thing that was happening with David. David was professing his trust in the Lord and others around him knew that he was trusting in the Lord. And there's that danger. Well, I may be embarrassed proclaiming my trust in the Lord and then the Lord may fail me. But, but David was still willing to talk about it and to, pro, to proclaim where his trust and his hope was. That's the first way that we ought to pray here. David was willing to trust God and to proclaim this trust. The second description of how we ought to pray is that next step in the, the chiasm, but it's found in verses 4 through 7 and 16 through 19. We, we see that we must plead for God's intervention. And as David uh, is going to, to pray for God to intervene in his circumstances, he's going to, to pray specifically for God to intervene in four ways. Uh, and, and the first way that he pleads for God to intervene is found in verses 4 and 5. And he's going to ask for God to make me know your ways, O Yahweh. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. In you I hope all the day. David understands that in the midst of his trial, what does he still need to get from God? Instruction. He still needs wisdom. And he prays for understanding concerning God's precepts, how God works and what he has called David to do in that circumstance. And he also is, is pleading for God to help him to know and understand his providence. God, how are you at work right here and right now? And we, those are the two things that we want to see and understand when we are in trials, right? But we want to know, God, what is it I'm supposed to do? And then how are you going to use this for your glory and for my good? That, that's what is David is crying out for here. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, David knew much, but he felt his ignorance and desired to be still in the Lord's school. And four times over in these two verses, he applies for a scholarship in the College of Grace. God, teach me, instruct me, help me to know, help me to understand. And then again, in verse 5, David affirms, where is his hope? He says, in you, I hope all the day. Now, that's the first way he asks God to intervene. In verses 6 and 7, David is going to plead for God to remember. Verse 6, remember, O Yahweh, your compassion and your loving kindnesses. Right? When he speaks of remembering here in this verse, he's not just saying, just bring this to mind. But the emphasis and the idea is, Lord, bring this to mind and act accordingly. Don't just you know, look on that, but look and remember it and then act. Uh, and uh, the, the, the Hebrew here, he says, remember really two things, your compassion and your loving kindnesses. In the Hebrew, they're both plural. I'm not sure why they don't have it uh, be both plural here in the, the English. But the, the emphasis is they, these are abundant, right? They are uh, multiple. Uh, and then David says they are from, uh, in the Hebrew, it says they are from eternity. They are, from, they are eternal in themselves. Uh, the, the LSB here has, they have been from of old. Does God remember your character, what you are like, your compassions, your loving kindnesses. And then in the next verse, he also brings up remembering, but in a very different way. He says, do not remember 
the sins of my youth or my transgressions. God, God, don't don't focus upon those things. Don't bring those to mind and act upon them. I'd rather you deal with me according to your mercies and compassions than according to my sin. He's crying out to God for that. According to your loving kindness, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Yahweh. Remember me according to mercy, not my according to my sin. And the, the third way that, that David pleads and petitions God to, to intervene is found in verses 16 and, and 17. He says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am alone and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. He says, Turn and be gracious. And when you turn, what, what's naturally uh, Gonna, when you t- go to look to somebody, your face is looking at them, and the, the face of God is connected with the blessing of God. Uh, the ironic blessing uh, is connected with that of turn and be gracious. Uh, and that's what David is building upon and crying out for here. Lord, please be gracious to me. Bring me out of my troubles. Bring me out of my dis- distresses. Uh, and... Uh, He says, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. And when we're walking through trials and circumstances, how does your heart feel? Sometimes it feels like it's just going to to burst. Because those thoughts, the the weight of all that is taking place, whether it's a result of things outside of you with others or a result of things inside of you and your own sin, it feels like the weight of your heart is and, and it's just growing and expanding and it's heavy. And that's the idea here. The Hebrew word is literally kind of the idea of of being widened or or multiplied. It's growing large. David feels wretched and alone, and he's weighed down by the the burden of his guilt and the attacks of his enemies. So he pleads for God to turn to him. And then in verses 18 and 19, he wants to be seen by God, to see my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. And that's the first thing that he wants God to see. God, just see how much I'm struggling right now. I want you to know, and I want to know that you know, God. And then he says also, Lord, I also want you to see those who are afflicting me and attacking me. See my enemies and see how much they hate me. They, they hate with a, with a cruel, violent hatred. They, they are, uh, these are not uh, minor enemies. They are opposing David in significant ways and coming against him. And so we see these four ways that David pleads for God to intervene. And most of us can identify with the last three. Most of us have cried out to God in that way. We've cried out to God to remember us. And we've cried out to God that he would turn to us, that he would see our sorrow, and that he would act accordingly. But most of us kind of speed past David's first prayer. The, the first intervention, we don't necessarily want that. We don't usually want instruction when we are in trials. As a, as a biblical counselor, I've had, I've had many people meet with me only once or twice. And they, they would profess to, to want help. But time makes it clear that they don't really want to change. They want to continue doing exactly what they are doing 
and they want me to give them different results. What's the old definition of insanity? Right, doing, doing the same thing over and over again, hoping that something different will, will happen. That's usually what takes place. They want, you can put it this way. They want intervention without instruction. But God's help toward sinners begins with instruction. That, that, is the, that is the beginning point of what God calls us to. Are we willing to hear from him? And, and David knows and understands that. This is a, a humble recognition by David. And he knows a lot, but he says, God, I still need to learn more. And is that our desire? We must desire God's instruction along with his intervention. That we must welcome the wisdom of his word and the discipline of his spirit at times. Proverbs three, eleven and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of Yahweh or loathe his reproof. For whom Yahweh loves, he reproves, even as a father reproves the son in whom he delights. If you were to think about your own life and your current struggles, I would encourage you, ask yourself this. Have you been open and welcome to God's instruction in that area? Or have you resisted it? You say, I know I'm struggling with this, but are you willing to hear from God about that? Oftentimes they say, I'm struggling with this, but I kind of just want to keep it exactly the way that it is. And because we want to keep things exactly the way that they are, things tend to be exactly the same. They continue to to struggle. You continue uh, to have your wheels spinning. And all the the mud on that narrow road, you're just sloshing it everywhere. Difficult to gain traction until we are willing to accept not only the intervention of the Lord, but the instruction of the Lord. And have you been praying for that like David prays here? That's what we see. We we have to, to trust in God's protection, but we also must plead for God's intervention. And the beginning point of that is God's instruction. There's a third way that we are taught to pray here in verses 8 through 10 and and 12 to 15, that we must reflect upon God's goodness. Transitioning from uh, that, that, the the pleading and the interceding for God to, to act and to intervene in his circumstances. Now David shifts gears and he begins to think about who God is and what God has done. Look at his conclusions of what he's meditating and and thinking and realizing about the character of God. Look at verse 8. Good and upright is Yahweh. Look at the beginning of verse 10. All the paths of Yahweh are loving kindness and truth. God is good himself and everything that he does is good. That, that That is David's recognition and his conclusion. And then he's going to reflect and move from there, from God's character, into how God acts as an outflowing of his character, God's conduct. Verse 8, he says, God, or good and upright is Yahweh, therefore, what does he do? He instructs sinners in the way. What was David just pleading for? Instruction. He's just crying out to God, instruct me, help me to know what to do. And then he reflects upon the character of God, and what conclusion does he come to? God will instruct me, and I can have assurance about that. Why? Because God is good and upright and faithful. Verse 9, may he lead the humble in justice, and may he teach the humble his way. The idea there, the word isn't actually the the humble. It's the idea of just those who are bowed down. 
And that can either point to those who are uh, humbled again themselves because of their own sin or those who are afflicted by others. But those who are bowed down, God is willing to, to lead in justice and he's willing to instruct and teach them his way. Verse 12, those uh, who uh, fear the Lord, who is the man who fears Yahweh? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. He will give him wisdom. He will show him the best way. When God tells us what we should do, it's the best way. It's the decision that we need to make. And then there's blessings that flow out of that. Verse 13, his soul will abide in goodness and his seed will inherit the land. Those who fear the Lord will, will abide in the idea in the Hebrews again, in prosperity. And that prosperity, that goodness that those who fear the Lord dwell in, that continues on to uh, the next generation, to his seed, to, to his descendants. Uh, and the, the be- blessings and benefits uh, of the parents naturally get passed on to the children. That's how it works in God's economy. Verse 14 says the secret of Yahweh. The idea there is his secret counsel. His secret scheme is made known to those who fear him. Uh, those who, who fear and trust in Yahweh, who revere him with worship... He will make himself known. He will make them know his covenant. David has determined, verse 15, as a response again of who God is and all that he has done. He says, my eyes are continually toward Yahweh. So my eyes and my, my spiritual focus is continually set upon him. I'm constantly praying and thinking about and looking to him in faith. And why? Look at the end of verse 15. For he will bring my feet out of the net. God is the one who's going to deliver him. That same uh, word is going to be seen in verse 17. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. David understands what God is able to do. He's reflecting upon the character of God uh, and the conduct of God that flows out of his character. And this is amazing and it's, it's profound and we see it not only in this psalm but everywhere in the psalms that theology matters. That David's uh, responses to the problems of life uh, all go back to his view of God. Uh, And his theology guides his life, and I want you to realize that as well. Wherever you are in life, your your beliefs have led you exactly there. Uh, There's a book by R.C. Sproul. It says, Everyone's a Theologian. And I I love that title. That's what we need to, to think about and to embrace. Every one of us is a theologian. Every one of us is operating on certain beliefs that, that's leading and guiding us in how we live and the decisions that we make. Uh, to put it another way, I love, I'll, I'll quote a, a theologian named Michael Lawrence. He says, practical problems have theological answers. And so the question is not whether or not you're going to be a theologian, but what kind of theologian you're going to be. What are you going to be building upon? Again, that, that's the whole reality of Psalm 1, right? Are you going to build upon uh, the wisdom of God's Word and meditate upon it day and night? Or are you going to build upon your own wisdom, the wisdom of the world? Uh, and you're going to be like chaff, driven every which way. Uh, this is the, the constant appeal and the constant challenge of the book of Psalms. What are you going to build upon? And are you working to grow in your knowledge and understanding of who God is and what he has done? Are you meditating upon what you're learning? Are you striving to to believe? Are you having a wrestling match with what you're reading in the scriptures and saying, do I really believe this? In the stillness of my heart, when nobody else is around, 
not talking to any other Christian, but do I believe that in my soul? That this is true and I need to, to build my life on it. That's what we need to do. And this begins with regularly reading the, the scriptures. That's why we do a monthly reading plan uh, in uh, our, our church, in all of our growth groups. And I won't ask how you guys are doing on that over the summer, okay? I know growth groups are, are on break and everyone kind of goes which way. But get back into the habit, okay? If you're, not, if you're not doing it now, get back into it. Well, I'll ask a, maybe a more convicting question. Hopefully you are, you are daily digesting it and taking in God's Word, which is good. That's a, that's a beginning point. But I'll also ask this. When was the last time you read a theologically rich book on the Christian life? When's the last time you read something that was going to to challenge you and force you to to think and to examine things in your heart and in your life? When was the last time that happened? This year? Last year? Previous year? Could ask another convicting question. How many Netflix shows have you finished in that in-between time? Right? And, you know, it's easy. It's easy to, to plop down and to be passive in our media intake. But, but you need to be prepared. You need to be building your theology. I love what one pastor says. People need their best theology in their darkest moments. I'll say that again. People need their best theology in their darkest moments. Your theology needs to be built up. You need to have it with you, inside of you, in your heart and in your mind. You need it with you before the trials come. Otherwise, you're going to be lost at sea, tossed every which way. And are you preparing for those moments? David was prepared. In the middle of all of his struggles, all of his trials, he had truth about God that he was able to tether his soul to. To say, God is good and upright. I'm going to hope in him. He's going to instruct me. He's going to be with me. He will not let me be put to shame. David was prepared. Are you prepared? Psalm 25 challenges us in this way. It teaches us, it challenges us how we ought to pray, trusting in God's protection. Pleading God's intervention, reflecting on God's goodness. And finally, verse 11, really the the, the center of the psalm. And we ought to request God's forgiveness. David prays in that verse, he says, For your name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And this is, this is the middle that David has been driving us to. This is the, the destination that he wants to, to arrive at, and then he's going to take us back out of it. But, but he's, he's hitting home this point. David himself is weighed down by the guilt of his sin before a holy God. And keep in mind, David does have some, some really big sins, but he's also known as a man after God's own heart. But as the longer we walk with Christ and with God, we see our own sinfulness. We see all of our thoughts and desires, all of the ugliness within. We tend to sin less on the outside, and we see more and more sin on the inside. And that's what, where David is. 
He's weighed down by the guilt of his sin. Uh, and he understands that he has absolutely nothing to offer God. As he pleads for forgiveness, what, what's the basis of his plea? Does God, for your name's sake, there, there's nothing in me that I can point to and say, God, forgive me because I've done this. No, God, for you, according to the riches of your grace. That's what we're reading about in Ephesians 1, right? That God has chosen us and he's redeemed us by the blood of Jesus Christ so that he would be praised and glorified. It's for his sake. We benefit from it, but he gets all of the glory. That's David's prayer here. And David is also acknowledging that in the greatness of his sin is, is the logic of his pleading. And that final statement in the verse, it is great. That helps him to see his only hope. It is so big and so devastating. It's such a huge, tremendous weight upon his heart and his soul. His only hope is for God to act. It's the same logic that would drive us to, to, to go to the doctor when we are desperately sick or in pain. And the severity of our condition leads us to plead with the doctor to be seen and cared for, right? When, when things are, tend to be okay, especially for us guys, we love to go to the doctor, right? Uh, and and when, men, when will we go to the doctor? When, when a bone is, you know, jutting out or if something's bending where it shouldn't bend. When there is extreme pain, that's when we're usually willing to go to the doctor. We are compelled, right? But it's that logic. When, when David is seeing and recognizing the, the severity of his sin and of his condition, he, he runs to God. And when we see the severity of our sin before a holy God, it should drive us to our knees in the same way. Praying to God, crying out to him, be merciful. And many of us resonate deeply with, with David's prayers in this psalm. And it's easy for, for past sins to, to just be an anchor to our soul and just drag us down. Really, really easy. We saw this back in verse 7. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Yahweh. Speaking about that verse, Charles Spurgeon says, The world winks at the sins of young men, and yet they are not so little after all. The bones of our youthful feasting at Satan's table will stick painfully in our throats when we are old men. He who presumes upon his youth is poisoning his old age. And how large a tear may wet this page as some of us reflect upon the past. And I think the older we get, we see that more and more. I remember uh, one time I was driving with my wife and I thought it would be fun to, to drive through Huntington Beach where I spent some years in college and sometimes it's fun to, to show your spouse where you lived in previous times. But uh, we, we got down there, and I start to to remember so many things from college. And, and I got there, and I'm like, I don't, I don't want to bring all of these things to to mind. I don't want to go in and talk about everything that took place here. Yes, those sins are forgiven, but I don't want to go and relive them. I don't want to bring those to mind. And so it wasn't nearly the experience I thought it was going to be. Driving through there, many of us identify with that. 
Many of us weep over old sins. And, and that's okay. Weeping over old sins helps us to remember in future temptation. Right? Let, let, let's remember how costly that was and how hard that was. And we can weep over old sins, but we should also echo David's prayer here. Lord, forgive me for your namesake. Cleanse me. I, I confess I need your forgiveness. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we turn to God and cry out, as David does here, he's willing to, to pardon all of our sins because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death, and he rose again so that we could be forgiven. So that every single one of our sins, past, present, future, the ones we know about, the ones we don't know about, that every sin could be washed away and that we could be reconciled with a holy God. One of my favorite songs or songs that we sing is His Mercy is More. I love the chorus. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is... Amen. And that's what David prayed, right? His mercies are eternal and everlasting. They are greater than our sins. And I want to urge you, if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ, I, w- I would urge you do that today. If you are weighed down by the burden of your sin, there is hope. Confess your sin to Christ. Confess your sinfulness to Christ. Cry out to him even as David does. Let today be the day of salvation. Let this psalm be the passage that urges you to look to Christ in faith. I love studying and preaching the psalms. And, and the psalms have for a long time have been a special balm to God's people. I would say that the Psalms have a, a certain transferability to them. They, they go across time and space. They, they tap into to human experience and that, that helps us to, to give and receive hope in our circumstances, in our trials. It, it brings us comfort in a transcendent way. And this psalm of David instructs us in how to live and pray along the narrow way, trusting in God's protection, pleading for God's intervention, reflecting upon God's goodness, and requesting God's forgiveness. This psalm was a, was a pleasant surprise to me as I studied. I, I wasn't very familiar with it, but once I, once I got into it, I said, man, this is, this is deep water. There's much to, to take in here. And I, I was also surprised by by how significant this psalm has been to other saints throughout church history. It has been a tremendous comfort to Christians uh, in many different circumstances. I came across this account about two Scottish uh, covenanter martyrs when they were facing persecution from the the Anglican uh, church in England and were compelled to believe according to the uh, Anglican uh, tradition and they didn't want to, to go along with that. So they were being martyred. So twi- this uh, is the account that twice a day, uh, up the deep channel of the sluggish Blednock, uh, fringed by steep and sloping mud banks, uh, sweeps the yellow tide of the sea, and stakes were set in the ooze of the tideway to which two women were bound, two Margarets. The elder uh, Margaret, Margaret McLaughlin, was set lower down the river and the, that the younger sufferer might see her struggles. And her course finished uh, before uh, 
sorry, that she might see her struggles before uh, her course finished, the younger Margaret, and that she would, in essence, repent as the older Margaret died. But pitying her youth, the executioners tried to save the, the younger Margaret, Margaret Wilson. And as the water swirled about her body, she was drawn to the edge of the bank and offered her, her life. If she would just say, God save the king, which was a, a test that they were requiring people to say. And she was ready to say, may God save the king if he will. That's his calling the king to repentance. And she was ready to say that, for she desired, she said, the salvation of all men, but she would not forswear her faith or, and take that test or fail that test. And so she once more secured to the stake and, and left to her fate, in essence, to be drowned as the waters would come in. And it says, with her fresh young voice, as the salt waves curled up, uh, up to her, her chest, that all uh, and all but touched her lips, she sang verse 7 of the 25th Psalm. My sins and faults of youth, do thou, O Lord, forget. After thy mercies, think on me for thy goodness great. And for thy goodness great. And she continued to sing that until her voice was choked out. This, this psalm, all of the psalms, there is a rich tradition of theology, of hope, of comfort. And we need to be more familiar with them than we are. Amen? We need to see and behold God for all that He is. Our theology needs to grow. We need to grow in prayer. We need to emulate David's prayers here and throughout the entire Psalter. May we become more familiar with this psalm. May we pray through it. May we sing it. May we meditate on it. And may it draw us nearer to God. I'm going to pray and then we have one more song. It's a short song. We can, we can do it, guys. Uh, and uh, I'll invite the, the music team up as I pray and we'll, we'll sing Hallelujah, What a Savior.